Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24? Ooh. Some, about time, yeah. Some of you have been waiting a really long time for this chapter. It is finally here. Today, this morning in our study of Matthew's Gospel, we find ourselves in Matthew 24. Now, in Matthew 24, as I'm sure most of you already know, Jesus gives one of the greatest prophetic teachings in the Bible concerning the signs of his second coming. It's a section known as the Olivet Discourse, or in other words, the discourse or the teaching that he gave on the Mount of Olives. Now, let's back up a, a couple of steps, and let's look at the background of Matthew 24, because it forms the context of everything Jesus is about to teach. Matthew 24 takes place a couple of days before Jesus' crucifixion. A couple of days prior to that was Palm Sunday. As you remember, we studied this already. The day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. That Sunday was a very special day. A day that Daniel had prophesied about 600 years earlier. The day when Messiah would present himself to the nation as their king. And of course, if the nation had received Jesus as their Messiah and king on that day, he would have set up the kingdom right then and there. Unfortunately for the nation, Israel rejected Jesus as their king. Even worse, four days later, many were crying, crucify him, crucify him. And even as Jesus was riding up the uh, Mount of Olives on that Sunday, his disciples were lining the roads. They were going crazy with kingdom fever and excitement. They were shouting from Psalm 118, Messianic Psalm, Save now! Save, Hosanna to the Son of David! Save now! And even as Jesus is riding up the Mount of Olives on that donkey, with his disciples just beside themselves with excitement, even as Jesus approaches the summit of the Mount of Olives, and sees the city of Jerusalem laid out in front of him. As Luke records in his gospel, chapter 19, the Lord begins to weep. This is not a triumphal entry. This is a tragic entry. He's being rejected. His disciples are receiving him, but they were a small minority amidst the whole nation. And so he begins to weep as he looks over the city because he knows that in 38 years, judgment is going to fall. Well, Monday of Passover week and Tuesday, the Lord was in the temple precincts teaching all day. Tuesday especially, he takes part of that day to strongly confront and denounce the leaders of Israel for their hypocrisy and so on. We studied that in Matthew 23. It makes up the bulk of that chapter. His denunciation of these uh, so-called spiritual men who are nothing more than hypocrites. And then we come to Matthew 23, verse 37 where Jesus indicts the nation, and in particular, the city of Jerusalem, one last time before his crucifixion. In verse 37, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is telling them that no kingdom will be set up at this time. In fact, he lays a bombshell on them when he says he's going away. Uh, you're going to see me no more, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, where he's going, he doesn't say. For how long he will be gone, he doesn't say. 
his disciples just know that at this point he will not be setting up the kingdom and he's going away. The disciples, of course, are heartbroken. They were all excited and expecting Jesus to set up the kingdom of God. Luke 19, verse 11 says, immediately, they were expecting him to set up the kingdom of God in the earth where he would reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth as the Jews being his prime ministers. But none of that is going to happen now because Jesus is going away. And with that, Jesus begins to leave the temple area where he's been teaching. And he starts moving towards the Mount of Olives with his disciples in tow. That, guys, becomes then the background of Matthew 24. We pick it up in verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. This would be the temple complex, okay? And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. This temple, called the Second Temple, or sometimes Herod's Temple, was originally built under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, not Joshua, the book of Joshua. It's another Joshua that came many years later. After the Babylonian captivity ended, many Jews made their way back to Jerusalem to rebuild, found the city in rubble. temple was destroyed. So under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the people began to rebuild the city and the temple. But as you read the account of them rebuilding the temple, you realize it was a pretty low-budget operation when compared with the magnificence of Solomon's temple, the first temple, which the Babylonians had destroyed. And so you had this um, kind of a low-budget temple that stood there for a few hundred years after the captivity had ended. And finally... Uh, a guy named Herod the Great shows up. He's the one who tried to kill the Jewish young boys. Remember Matthew's uh, Gospel, chapter 2? And Herod wants to ingratiate himself with the Jewish people. Why? Because Rome had installed him as king of Judea, king of the Jews. But he's not Jewish, and so the Jews hate him. They consider him an interloper, someone who had no right to rule over them as king. Who was he? He was a descendant of Esau the twin of Jacob. The Edomites and the Israelites were mortal enemies uh, for most of their existence. So to put an Edomite, Herod, over God's people as their king, obviously rubbed them the wrong way. They hated Herod. So Herod felt like, well, you know what? I got to get in good with these people. I got to placate them somehow. I know what I'll do. I'll take this rickety temple of theirs and I will refurbish it. And I mean, man, he poured himself into this project. He spent, oh, I can't tell you how many in, by today's, billions by today's standards to completely redo the temple and its complex. He didn't just rebuild the temple proper, that one building that had the Holy of Holies and the, the holy place in it. He took it upon himself to greatly expand and reconstruct the entire temple complex, turning it into, listen, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. In fact, one author put it this way, said, and I quote, The temple and its adjunct building stood on the top of a mount. A massive retaining wall on the south and west sides helped support the mount itself as well as the temple. The temple was awe-inspiring by any standards. But to a group of common men from rural Galilee, it must have been a breathtaking marvel. They could not conceive how such an enormous structure could have been built or decorated so magnificently. Some of the stones measured 40 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet, 
and weighed up to 100 tons, quarried as a single piece, and transported many miles to the building site, end quote. Where there was no gold in the temple, they had put blocks of marble of such pure white that Josephus tells us strangers from a distance thought there was snow on the temple. The work began 20 B.C., and it wasn't finished until 64 A.D., just six years before the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., which is exactly what Jesus Christ is alluding to in verse 2 when he said, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You say, well, what exactly is he talking about? He's talking about judgment, obviously. You say, what happened? Well, 38 years later, after Jesus made this statement, the Jews in Israel revolted against Rome. Initially, they had some success, but ultimately, Rome crushed the Jewish resistance. In 70 AD, Jerusalem fell, and the last surviving Jews took refuge in the temple because it was the strongest and most secure building in the city. Historians tell us that Roman soldiers surrounded the temple, and one drunken soldier set the thing on fire. And the temple began to burn, and as it did, Herod had placed on the roof of the temple beautiful gold ornate carvings and things, and of course, inside the temple on the ceiling, there was gold. And so as the temple began to burn, the gold melted and dripped between the cracks of these massive stones that was used to build it. And so to get the gold, the Roman general Titus ordered his soldiers to dismantle the temple stone by stone to extract the gold. And that's how it came to be that not one stone was left upon another. They did such an incredible job dismantling this temple the archaeologists to this very day can't tell you exactly where that temple sat on the temple mount it's still a big debate now all of what jesus has just gotten done saying everything from verse 37 of chapter 23 through verse 2 of chapter 24 was weighing heavily on the minds of the disciples as jesus left the city traveled across the kidron valley up the mount of olives where he eventually sat down his disciples came to him and asked him two questions. Two questions that related to everything he had just gotten done saying. Let's read verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. These two questions, guys, become the outline around which the Olivet Discourse is built. Now, First of all, let me stop and say this if you're going to properly interpret and understand Jesus' teaching in this chapter. This is important. Please don't miss this. You, you won't understand anything else I teach on Matthew 24 if you don't get this. So many Christians come away with different views and interpretations of this chapter, which has led to a fair amount of confusion, by the way, simply because they read it as though Jesus was directing it to Christians living in the church age. Why do they do this? Well, they do it for a number of reasons. The biggest one is that they see the Old Testament as having been written to the Jews and the New Testament as having been written to the church. And because of it, they automatically look at everything written in the New Testament as being directed to Christians. And so when they read Matthew 24, and Jesus talks about the elect in verses 22 and 24, well, they see it as a reference to Christians. Then they carry that down 
to verses 29 and 30 to 31, where they come away believing that the church is going to go through the tribulation period. Let's read it. Verse 29. Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, talking about the great tribulation now, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And they say, well, there it is. Okay, Tribulation period is over. Here comes Jesus. He sends his angels out to gather his elect, his church, from all over the earth. See, the church is going through the tribulation period. It's as simple as the nose in your face. I don't know about that. I personally, I personally do not believe Jesus Christ is addressing Christians in Matthew 24 and 5. I do not believe the church is in view in these chapters. Remember, the church isn't going to be even born for another 55 days on the day of Pentecost. These disciples, and hear me out, these disciples of Jesus are not even New Testament Christians at this time. And they won't be New Testament Christians until the evening that Jesus rose from the dead as they were barricaded in that upper room, John 20, for fear of the Roman soldiers coming to get them next to crucify them. And they're hiding out for fear of their lives. And here comes Jesus walking straight through the walls. At first they thought he was a ghost, didn't they? He said, no, no, come and touch me. It is a ghost of flesh and bone, as you see, I have. And now they realize that Jesus Christ has truly risen from the dead. They had heard the reports from the women and all, but they hadn't seen it with their own eyes yet. Now they believe in the resurrected Lord. And in verse 22 of John 20, Jesus breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, they are officially New Testament believers. Because Paul the Apostle said, to be a New Testament Christian, you have to believe in the resurrection. John 10, right? Verse 9. Jesus said earlier in the evening before his crucifixion, in the upper room, he told his disciples, the Holy Spirit is with you, he shall be what? In you. Now, he appears to them after his resurrection, breathes on them, the Spirit comes in them. Now they are officially New Testament Christians. Paul the Apostles in Romans 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God in them, they don't belong to Christ. They're not Christians. So what are you saying, Phil? These guys weren't even saved at this time? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I believe they were saved. But in the Old Testament sense, just like Daniel and Isaiah and Moses and Abraham were saved, these guys, up until the night of Jesus' resurrection, were believers. They were saved. But in the Old Testament sense. And I bring all that up because I want you to understand something. They're not thinking like New Testament Christians. They're thinking like Jewish men. Very important you understand it. If you don't understand that, you're going to get this whole chapter wrong, okay? You need to understand that the two questions that Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, listen, were Jewish questions asked by Jewish men who were looking for the Jewish Messiah to establish the Jewish kingdom. They weren't thinking about the rapture of the church, as so many try to interpret Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 to be teaching. I mean, they didn't even know what the rapture was at this point. Don't forget, these men were not theological scholars. They were simple fishermen. 
And Jesus wasn't trying to confuse them with complicated doctrines. He was simply trying to answer their question in a way they could understand. Matthew 24, guys, is Jewish territory. Now look, I am not, I am not a hyper-dispensationalist. Hyper-dispensationalists believe that only Paul's writings were written to the church. Nothing in the Gospels. Or by the Apostle John. Or by Jude or James is directed to Christians. I don't believe that. I believe there's a lot in the Gospels directed to Christians in the church. But I also believe there's a lot in the Gospels that was not directed at the church. It was directed at the Jews and at Israel. And it's our responsibility through prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit to rightly divide what is directed to Israel, what is directed to the church, and then what principles transcend both covenants. Because we have principles of morality, Jesus taught, they apply to both Jews and Gentiles, or to Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. All right, the two questions, once again. They ask, when will these things be? What things, quote-unquote, do the disciples have in mind? Well, this question refers back to what Jesus had said in connection with the temple. Or in other words, when will the temple, they're asking, be left desolate, something Jesus alluded to in chapter 23, verse 38, and then destroyed, something Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 2. And the second question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Or in other words, what supernatural event or events, they're asking, will happen that will signal your return to establish the kingdom? Remember now, in Matthew 23, verse 39, Jesus said he was going away. He was going away for a while. Didn't tell him how long. And so now they're asking, okay, well then what signs need to happen or take place before you return? You're not telling us where you're going or how long you're going to be gone, but when are you coming back? What signs do we look for that will indicate you're coming back soon? And that's what they're basically asking him. What signs need to take place before you return to establish the kingdom? And the kingdom age begins and this current age comes to an end is basically the question. Now, I want you to understand that when the disciples asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, they weren't asking, as the King James Bible translates it, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? That's a bad translation there. I love the King James, but they messed it up there. They're not asking, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? They're asking, what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The Greek is ion, and it just simply means an extended period of time and again you have to understand the jewish mindset you got to put yourself in their sandals if you don't really understand where they're coming from and where these questions are coming from and what are they rooted in what kind of thinking see the jews saw the present time the time prior to messiah's coming to establish the kingdom listen as the evil age the evil age of man's rule and rebellion on the earth in other words the age of Gentile dominion. You see, they longed for the day when Messiah came and established the glorious kingdom age, a time when evil against one's fellow men and rebellion against the God of heaven was done away with, a time when war, sickness, and poverty would end and mankind would be ushered into a glorious utopian period of righteousness, love, and peace. That was the Jewish mindset. God, ever since the Garden of Eden, when man rebelled in the garden, it threw the world into chaos. It brought the fall. Your creation was corrupted. 
We see evil everywhere. We see people who don't love your law, who are killing and hurting and taking advantage of others. We see injustice abound. We see inequity abound. Lord, we long for the day when Messiah comes and will establish a kingdom on the earth, a glorious kingdom, where there's not going to be any rebellion against you anymore, where wars are going to end. Nobody's going to study war anymore. Isaiah tells us every man or woman will sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid. They'll take their, their, uh, their swords and spears and beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks. And man will study and do war no more. That's what they were looking for. And so what they're asking is, Lord, when is the... You're going away. Well, Lord, we were hoping you'd establish the kingdom age now. We're tired of man's rebellion. We're tired of all the evil in the world. All right, you're going away. When are you coming back so this evil age can end and your glorious kingdom age can begin? Now, as we get into these two questions, let me just say something about the first of the two questions that Jesus' disciples asked him. Again, the first one is, when will these things be? Or in other words, when will the temple be destroyed? When will the temple be destroyed? You're telling us not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. When is that going to happen, Lord? Do you realize Matthew doesn't record Jesus' answer to that question? Matthew chooses to focus primarily on the signs of a second coming. However, Luke does record Jesus' answer to that first question in his gospel, chapter 21. So why don't you turn there, and let's pick it up in verse 20. So the question is, when will the temple be destroyed? And Jesus' answer is, Luke 21, verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let none of those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the fullness or the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, that took place in 70 AD, as we've already said. And when the Romans surrounded the city and the temple, uh, they began to slaughter the Jews, and uh, many of them fled. They were scattered throughout the world. The term wandering Jew came into existence at that time. The Jewish people fled. The nation of Israel ceased to exist. Now, in Matthew 24... Starting in verse 15 and running through verse 20, Jesus uses similar language as he does in Luke 21, verses 20 to 24. That's why there's confusion. You read Luke 21, where Jesus is talking about 70 AD, and you read Matthew 24, starting at verse 15 running through verse 20, and the language is very similar. And so people get confused, but you, I, you need to understand Jesus is not talking about the same events there. You have to understand about prophecy. When we talk about prophecy, often there is a short-term partial fulfillment, but then a long-term ultimate fulfillment. In Luke 21, we get the short-term partial fulfillment, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But in Matthew 24, which is clearly talking about the time when Antichrist reigns, we scope into the future 2,000 years, and we're talking about the ultimate long-term fulfillment of what Jesus is saying in Luke 21. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. Now, 
Let's read the first part of Matthew 24 so I can at least say we started the chapter. <laughs> and we'll use it as kind of an introduction to next week's study. All right. They come to him. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. They ask the two questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of this evil age? Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and, and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, starting next week, we'll get into all of what that means. But I want you to understand just as we wrap up this morning. In the Bible, it's common practice to give an overview of a period of time and then focus in on one particular part of that time to amplify it, to give more detail about it. We see this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, gives us a quick thumbnail sketch of the first of the six days of creation. But then in chapter 2, God zeroes in on the sixth day of creation, the day that man was created, because that's the focus of the story of redemption, which is the theme of the rest of the Bible. If you don't know that, and I've heard skeptics say, oh, you got two, two creation accounts in the Bible. Which one are you going to pick? What do you mean? Well, you got the creation account in Genesis 1 and the creation account in Genesis 2. You don't know your Bible. There's only one creation account. In Genesis 1, God sketches out... Quickly, the six days of creation, second chapter, he zeroes in on the sixth day, the day man was made, because guess what? Man fell, and the story of redemption kicked in, which is what the theme of the whole Bible is about after that point. And so God just wants to give you a quick overview of what's going to happen. Then he zeroes in often on one particular part to amplify it. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here with his disciples when they asked him, about the sign that would precede his coming. And let me just stop and say this. We know it is the second coming, don't we? They didn't know it was the second coming. All they know is he's going away. He said it in the end of chapter 23, I'm going away. You shall see me no more until you say, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. They have no idea he's going away for 2,000 years. Okay? They think he's going away for a little trip maybe and he's coming back. They're waiting for the kingdom still. In fact, after he rose from the dead, he stayed with them another 40 days. Remember what they asked him? At this time, Lord, we established the kingdom? They have no idea he's going away for 2,000. We know that. We're looking back, right? But they weren't thinking in those terms. Again, we impose our 2,000 years of Christianity and half a world apart in Western culture upon the Bible, and we're coming up with all kinds of strange interpretations. You've got to think like Jewish people. You've got to understand, you got to think like first century Jewish men for a lot of this stuff. But when they ask them, okay, you're going away, what are, what are the signs going to be that will precede your coming back? 
In verses 4 to 14, Jesus gives them a quick overview of the last seven years before his return, which makes up the entire seven-year tribulation period. But then starting in verse 15, running through verse 31, Jesus goes back and focuses on the last three and a half years of those seven to amplify it in greater detail, to show us what was going to happen in that particular period of time, a time that we know as the, listen, great tribulation. You have the seven-year tribulation period. First three and a half years, judgment, but not so bad. Last three and a half years, serious judgments. The great judgments, great tribulation. Jesus likened this whole seven years to a woman in labor. He says a woman starts out labor with birth, birth pangs that are not as intense and space farther apart. As she gets closer to the birth of the child, the birth pangs become more intense right on top of each other until the child is born. That's how it's going to be in the last seven years. Judgment will start off slow, not so intense, giving people a chance to repent. But as we move into the second half, it becomes great. It becomes the hard labor, if we could put it that way. It becomes great tribulation. Until finally, right at the end, the earth is reeling from one cataclysmic judgment after another until Jesus comes and the birth of the kingdom happens. Then there's peace. There's joy. Now, since the context of Matthew 24 is all about judgment, the tribulation period, a time when God is going to pour out his judgment on this Christ-rejecting world, guess what? We as Christians have received Christ. We haven't rejected him. We, we've received him. We're not rebels anymore. We're children of God. So if Matthew 24 deals with the tribulation period, which is God pouring his judgment out upon this world, and we know that God won't punish us with unbelievers because we're his kids now, didn't Peter say that God will not punish the righteous with the wicked? There's no reason to punish us. We're not rebels. Tribulation period is to punish the rebels who have rejected Christ, living in rebellion against God. We stopped doing that the day we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So there's no reason for us to go through the Great Tribulation period, which means the rapture is going to happen before, I believe. What is the purpose of the rapture? Well, a big purpose is to evacuate God's people off the earth before his judgment comes. To evacuate us off the earth before his judgment falls upon the wicked. I'll have you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now you can read the whole chapter yourself. I want you to know that what precedes 1 Thessalonians 5 is 1 Thessalonians 4. Aren't you glad you come to this church so I can enlighten you on these deep concepts? But at the end of chapter 4, Paul gives us one of two in the New Testament teachings, one of two of his teachings on the rapture. God revealed it to Paul, and Paul shares it with the church in 1 Thessalonians 4 and then 1 Corinthians 15. But as you come to the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking about the rapture. From verses 13 to 17, the rapture is in view. This sudden snatching of God's people off the earth to meet him in the clouds before the, the judgment of God is poured out. Okay? Then chapter 5 begins with the coming of the Antichrist, who deceives people into thinking he's the real Christ. Now don't forget, 
we have the New Agers. They've been looking for a Messiah for a long time who's going to lead the world into a new age, the age of Aquarius, where there's going to be peace and harmony and so on. You also have uh, many Muslims who are looking for the, uh, for the Mahdi, the Muslim Messiah. When he comes, he will bring the world into a state of peace, prosperity. You've got the Jewish people who are also looking for the Messiah because they rejected Jesus. So you have many people in the world who are looking for a Messiah. The devil gives them a Messiah, the Antichrist. The word anti in Greek we think means against. Sometimes it does mean that. In the Greek, the word could mean in place of. The Antichrist isn't against the concept of the Christ. He is a substitute Christ. He is a deceiver who passes himself off as the true Christ. And he will sit in the temple of God at one point and declare himself to be God. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5. And Paul tells us that when the world thinks, ah, peace and safety. Here's our, here's our Messiah. He's finally reigning over the whole earth in this glorious new age. Paul says, but when the people of this world say peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. There's that language again. Matthew 24, Jesus likens this period to a woman in labor. Judgment is going to come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But what about the church? Verse 9. But God did not appoint us to wrath, judgment, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, that's what's called in Scripture the blessed hope. The rapture is called the blessed hope. Why? Because we're waiting for the Lord Jesus. In fact, Paul said this to Titus. He said in Titus 2.13, We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the church now, looking for the Lord's appearing. What is that a reference to? The rapture. It's our blessed hope. I mean, it's all about Jesus evacuating. I'll tell you what, I'm really looking forward to the blessed hope. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who believe the church is going to go through the tribulation period. They don't have a, is that their blessed hope? I don't know. They act like it sometimes, like it's a badge of honor. We're going through the tribulation period. Well, have at it, man. I mean, you know, enjoy yourself. Say hi to the Antichrist for me. I want to get out of here, man. I want the Lord to evacuate me. I know most of you guys do too. Well, all you do, but not, I don't know. Some of you think this guy's out to lunch. What time, what time is this going to be over with so I can get out of here? Okay, we're almost done. Hang on. But I'm looking forward to Jesus evacuating me off of this earth before the wrath of God is poured out. Once again, guys, God's wrath or judgment upon this world is the main theme of Matthew 24, which deals with the last seven years of human history as we know it called the tribulation period. And since God won't punish the righteous with the wicked, the church is not in view in Matthew 24. Now, a few weeks ago, I was on a live radio call-in show called Pastor's Perspective. And a gentleman called, and he had been listening to me on the radio, because I, I, I'm on the radio uh, in Indiana and some other places, and Illinois, but this guy was from Indiana. And um, he called, he was upset with me. Okay, he was, he was taking me to task because he had heard me teach this very thing, that the church is not going through the tribulation period. He was upset with me. Here's what he said. He said, how can you say 
the church won't go through the tribulation period when Jesus told his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. He said, well, how can you teach we're going to be exempt from that? I said, well, hear me out. Okay. Um, don't confuse the tribulation of the world against the church. When Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. The world will persecute you. No, no Christian is exempt from that. That's a reality for all people of God, right? Don't confuse, I told this gentleman. The tribulation of the world poured out against the church with the tribulation of God poured out against the world during the tribulation period. For that, we are exempt. We don't have to suffer with the wicked. And so I'll leave it at that. I want to just thank you for your patience. I know I promised you we'd get into Matthew 24, and we did. I never told you how far we'd get in. But let me just say this. If we didn't lay this groundwork today, in fact, just before I came to church this morning, I was catching up with the news a little bit, and I'll, I'll bring it up next time. But somebody made a comment about a doctrine that I don't believe affects Christians today, but they said does. Because in Matthew 24, it says, I thought, man, he's doing the very thing that I'm trying to get you guys not to do. He's reading the church and Christians in Matthew 24, and he's coming up with all kinds of unbiblical doctrines. This is Jewish territory. The church hasn't begun yet. It will begin on the day of Pentecost. And, of course, then as God gives to the church apostles like Paul and others who then he gives the revelation of the New Testament doctrine to, um, the church moves forward. But right now we're still dealing with the time prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And so uh, read Matthew 24 that way, and, and we'll go through it. And I'll show you why we don't believe the church is in view here. Why Israel is in view. And if you take that to heart, and you'll be able to read this chapter and get from it, I believe, what God really wants you to understand. All right? So we'll see that starting next week. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that your word is a light, a lamp unto our feet to guide us through the darkness of this world. And Lord, as long as we walk in the light of your truth, we'll never stumble in darkness. But Lord, give us grace because we need to be able to study your word and to rightly divide it so that we know what applies to us, what, what applies to Israel, and what things apply to both of us. And so, Lord, we want to be good students of your word. We want to be men and women who don't just quickly read it, assume some things, read Christianity or the church into the passage, and then come away with a, a weird doctrine that doesn't, isn't really biblical. So, Lord, we thank you. And we ask you to bless these studies, not just in Matthew 24, but through the rest of the gospel. For we ask it all, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.